Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, this is Zach Shiner, and it is February 2019. We've had a amazing last couple of weeks. We had Reanimate 6 that was uh, just at the end of... January had Bob Bartlett, Joe DeBose, and it was an epic, fantastic time in San Diego. I encourage you. R7, Reanimate 7, is in September, uh, just a few months away. So sign up for that. It'll be fantastic. I was also just with Justine Bredy from Norway in Switzerland just yesterday. Yeah. We just got back. And he is joining me today because we are going to talk about a sort of interesting segue. Not quite ECMO, not Reboa, but something in between. And so, Justine, thank you for uh, joining us today. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for the invite. Really appreciate it. So tell me, what are you doing up there in Norway? Yeah, okay. So we have um, we have a project right now in the central part of, uh, of Norway. It's a single center study. We are um, establishing Reboa, Patients suffering from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and we're trying to see if that will help CPR. Okay, so and then the thought process there is use of a balloon to occlude the proximal aorta during cardiac arrest. Why Why is that a good thing? Yeah, so the, the idea is if you um, occlude your thoracic aorta, you will reduce the vascular volume you need to distribute your generated cardiac output upon. And so it's about improving hemodynamics and prioritizing the, the, the brain and the heart. Because if you're having a cardiac arrest, it's really just two organs that matters, and that is uh, the brain and it's the heart. Why it should work? I'm, I'm sure that uh, any of the listeners that are uh, interested in cardiac arrest, you have read a lot of papers uh, about this, but uh, it might be that it's, uh, it's about the coronary perfusion pressure. There's there's a lot of, of studies on this and and but uh, on, on on animal but there's a there's a large and pretty famous study from 1990 uh, by Paradise uh, published in JAMA that measured pressures in patients suffering from cardiac arrest and and uh, they found uh, 100 patients and they found that all the patients with ROSC none of these patients had a coronary perfusion pressure of less than 15. Uh, coronary perfusion pressure is basically uh, aortic pressure minus the pressure in the right atrial, and this is diastolic. So I'm not saying that uh, the CPP, the coronary perfusion pressure, I'm not saying that 15 is a magic number, uh, but this uh, study clearly indicates that improving your coronary perfusion pressure might improve your probability of, of achieving ROSC. And if you occlude the thoracic aorta, so this is zone one aorta, if you occlude the thoracic aorta, you, you will most likely you will increase aortic pressure. And given this equation, you will also increase uh, CPP. And that's kind of the, the whole point and the whole idea behind this intervention in, in non-traumatic cardiac arrest. Fantastic. Improving yes. coronary perfusion. 
you can get a higher chance of ROSC. We know that with the the whole Paradise study, like you quoted. So now tell me, what what is though is, is actually going on? I've got I put a balloon up into the proximal aorta. I've got it occluded. I do chest compressions, and now this whole idea of the thoracic pump theory. What what is going on with the pressures that are generated there? Well, uh, to be truth, nobody knows yet because we have there is studies, uh, preclinical studies. So there's a lot of convincing data from from the animal world, but uh, from the human world, we we don't know. So it's uh, this is one of the the answers that we might be able to give with a study like this because you, you include the order, you will have giant aerial pressure possibilities directly directly into the aorta, and then you can see the you can see the possible change in in, in aorta, aorta pressure before and after occlusion. What happens with the pressure in the radial artery and so forth? And the the truth is nobody knows that now, but we can. When we measure this, we, we, we know we can know. Okay, so potentially we could increase our CPP. We could improve our chance of ROSC. We have the same sort of problems with traditional Reboa into our lower extremity. Is that correct? Um, what do you mean by that? So yeah. as far as like ischemic times into the legs, obviously if someone is in cardiac arrest, yeah. you have the same problems of having hyperkalemia. Yeah, because, um, well, like I said before, when it's just two things that matter if you're having cardiac arrest. You have a low flow uh, you have a low flow situation during CPR, and it's the brain and the heart that really matters. So, um, if you prioritize down the lower body, like you will do if you put the aorta, you will of course have great ischemic time in in the, in the stomach, abdomen, and, and and the legs. But if you don't achieve ROSC, well, you are dead. If you achieve ROSC, you will. But that's better than not having ROSC. And, and uh, with the Raboa, our equipment now is seven French. There's studies from uh, some years ago uh, with uh, larger equipment, so, so it is greater size. And then you have all kinds of, of uh, complications, arterial dissections, uh, embolisms, bleedings. But with seven French introducers, a seven French balloon, you have less ischemic problems so if you achieve ROSC and you go to the deflate the balloon and you go to the hospital, it's no worries having the the introducer in. Okay, so the seven so French catheter is not a big deal. You you kind of alluded to it already, but you keep keep the balloon occluded until you get return of spontaneous circulation. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And an important question is when should we deflate the balloon? And also here, nobody knows. You have if you achieve ROSC. You will have a weakened heart. You will have a stunned heart. And this will have to try to generate and pump against a massive afterload. So most uh, likely you will you need to uh, deflate the balloon as soon as possible because otherwise your heart will just uh, be exhausted. Right. And this is one of the things we think about in ECMO where are we creating an increased afterload? I actually had a recent yeah. discussion with Bob Bartlett about it and he's like, this is he did not feel that that was a significant contributor. But if we've got a balloon, then yeah, potentially we could have a, a much bigger pressure. Is this something that we want to titrate down as far as like um, measuring or transducing the pressures above and below the balloon and decide whether it's uh, the heart can actually manage it? Or is this somewhat like a, is there any correlation a to like a balloon pump theory here? 
this is a really good question. And and um, so so you have if you have um, uh, a balloon ship in, you can measure the proximal, and you can also measure in the the pressure in the um, introducer. So you have both proximal and distal blood pressures. If you rapidly deflate the balloon, most likely the heart will think that you are having kind of a hypovolemic shock, and you will go directly into uh, re-arrest. Uh, so to inflate the, to do to deflate the balloon very quickly, that might not be a good idea. But it's a it's a long catheter and it's a long inner tubing, so it takes about 30, 40, 50 seconds to deflate the balloon uh, regardless. And that might be so you won't have a dramatic fall in afterload. But again, we don't know. But if you have a, if you have a pressure set distal and proximal, then you can have uh, then you can titrate, as you say. You can have uh, partial reboa. So you have a, and if you if you see that your patient is deteriorating, well, then you can increase the, the inflation a bit. Now, your decision to try and initiate this on out of hospital cardiac arrest is is pretty novel. What what inspired you to go and try this approach to out of hospital cardiac arrest? Well, the physiology and the the. The idea behind it is fairly simple and it's easy to understand. And I think I need something that is easy to understand because I'm just a simple person from Norway. But um, we have uh, a potential to to save a lot of people because a lot of the persons that are suffering from out-of-hospital non-traumatic cardiac arrest, they are really actually kind of healthy. They don't have this, uh, this severe sickness, uh, illness that, that in-hospital patients often have. So, so we have a potential to, to save pretty healthy patients, actually, that are so close to being uh, dead. And in the last year, we have seen not so many great inventions, in the, apart from ECMO, of course. But, but well, we can, we can discuss, should we do 35, 32, continuous, non-continuous? This is a novel treatment, and, and perhaps it will augment, and perhaps it will help uh, patients. And, okay. Um, okay, so uh, one of the things uh, that I think is amazing about what you're doing is that you are, you are augmenting car, uh, ACLS. You are improving, potentially improving the outcomes uh, yeah. in an environment where you know that you can't do ECMO in the field, and you probably can't even do ECMO in your hospital, but you are using this strategy, which is advantageous because of your environment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We have we have two issues. Uh, the first is in the pre-hospital world, we have challenges that you don't have in the hospital. We have, is it light? Is it dark? What about temperatures? Here in Norway and in a lot of other countries, you have freezing temperatures. You will, of course, not be able to put uh, a patient neither on ECMO or on Reboa in minus a lot of degrees. Um, do you feel safe on the highway? You have all kinds of, of challenging in the pre-hospital world that we need to to address in this uh, pilot study. Um, the other part, which I talked about in, in, um, in Cermot, is that a lot of this would, uh, of course, be fixed with ECMO. But I live in Norway, and it's, a, it's kind of a vast and a very long country, but we have only 5 million people. I work in the third biggest, second or third biggest, in Norway, and it's about 250,000 inhabitants. So it's <laughs> it's really not a large city. So uh, and with 200 hands physician and 200 uh, paramedics, well, the the math in here is that we will not be able to 
put patients safely and swift on pre-hospital ECMO. If you work in a large city, if you work in a large hospital, that that will most likely that will be your drug of choice because ECMO will fix a lot of this. But in our service in Norway, and this is also the case in in a lot of other European countries, I think I, I see great challenges in in um, establishing ECMO pre-hospital because of this. So this so it's really cool. So you've got this environment, and this is this speaks so much to the rest of the world as well, where you are utilizing endovascular techniques as best as you can. You're utilizing what the resources you have, the environment that you have. And in your case, you are now trialing use of a balloon to try and augment CPP. So that's that to me is just fantastic. Now, as far as you're not the only one doing this in the world, right? There's a couple other places that are doing this. Yeah, there's two other places that are currently re- registered at clinical trials. That's one in the, um, in Switzerland. Uh, they're doing it in in hospital cardiac arrest, and it's one in uh, in the U.S. Actually, that is also in the ED. So they have they have don't have the challenges of temperature and weather and all kinds of things. But this the the second study in in, in um, the U.S. Uh, I think is uh, also on auto hospital cardiac arrest that are transported to into hospital. And, and just to add what I didn't say uh, earlier was that one possible possible benefit here is that if you occlude the aorta and you have and you achieve ROSC and you of course you use some time to to insert this uh, this uh, introducer and balloon sheet, well you will uh, you will win this time when you get to the hospital because uh, if you want the patients to go directly to uh, coronary angiography or or you want them on ECMO, well then you you already have your arterial cannula inside so it's it's on place yeah it is that's a really cool thing and there's some you know likeness to manning's uh sap catheter in that Mm -hmm. you can you can rapidly transition to ecmo okay so tell me this whole problem the the, the sap catheter will also fix this because it's a it's a it's a just a great uh reboa with the possibility of, of rapid infusion but the problem is that it's not for human use yet but well, once Jim managed that, well, suck it is. <laughs> so tell me your procedure. You're out in in the middle of nowhere in Norway, and it is freezing out, and you've got a patient that's in cardiac arrest. Tell me exactly what you do when you get to the scene. Okay, so first, it's important that we need to be more than just a HAMS crew, because the HAMS crew is just a, it's a anesthesiologist, board-qualified uh, anesthesiologist, and a paramedic. And this is just two people, and, and so we also need ambulance crew. But most likely you have your first responders being an um, ambulance uh, or something like that. You will uh, work together to, to establish the ACLS, current gold uh, standard treatment, endotracheal intubate. Uh, we put them on a mechanical chest compression machine, and, and we have an IV or IO access, uh, of course, on the upper body. The, um, if the patients then uh, fit the inclusion criteria, not the exclusion criteria, the um, physician will say to the team, hey, guys, we need to do the reboa. And then the paramedic and the uh, HEMS physician will start preparing for this. Fetch the equipment, get the ultrasound, wash the groin, uh, sterile drape, everything. And the ambulance crew will then do uh, the ACLS simultaneously. So it's a, it's of importance that 
they communicate well and that perhaps the medications are already drawn so they, so the two ambulance workers do not have to do everything of this while the uh, hems physician and paramedic is uh, busy doing the robola. And so after four or five minutes of, of preparation, uh, they have uh, cut clothes, they have uh, gathered some ultrasound uh, images and uh, washed uh, and sterile rates and it's cannulation time. They cannulate the femoral artery um, and we have, it's a guide wire and then it's a seven French introducer and then it's a seven French balloon sheet uh, with a 20 millimeter balloon, uh, 30 millimeter occlusion length, but 20 millimeter of width. Put it up into the zone one aorta and this being outside hospital is of course, uh, fluoro- this is no fluoroscopy. So it's, um, it's important that we, we make sure that it's in uh, arterial cannulation and not a venous one. But, so that's why we use ultrasound. Um, actually, there's more reasons because if you if you do a venous cannulation and you occlude the vena cava inferior, you will have a dramatic reduction in in preloads. You probably you will kill your patient, and we don't want that. So it's of it's of importance that we see two vessels, and the anatomy doesn't change when you have a cardiac arrest. So you know which one is artery and one which one is vein. You should not do this blindly with blind technique because the the pulse in uh, during cardiac arrest during CPR is half of the time it's it's the pulse you feel is in the vein so you really don't know uh, which vessel you are uh, cannulating and the blood will be black no matter if it's in arterial or in the vein so it's it's really important that that we have ultrasound and then you occlude the aorta uh, you your ACLS is, is uh, done as, uh, as always. And uh, if you feel that it's ethical, uh, non-acceptable to, to continue, you should not do so. And if you, um, so, so that this procedure does not interfere with the, the other uh, important work of, of uh, or, or um, decisions that, that the physician does on scene. And if, you, if they achieve ROSC, they will deflate the balloon slowly like we talked about earlier, and uh, prepare for departure to hospital. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is, it's all super cool it's stuff. Cool. I'm just trying to think about, uh, you know, what it's like to have, I mean, I've done, you know, we've done cannulations in San Diego. Okay, that's one thing. Yeah. It's doing uh, pre-hospital ECMO in Paris, I've done in January, which was another thing. But yeah. Norway, and you guys are not even just Norway, you're North Nor or Mid-Norway, uh, I just the the temperature has got to be such a factor in in just having wearing clothes and what the patient is like trying to expose the groin. I mean, this is a logistical consideration that I think most of us just overlook. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and of course, uh, this is something we need to address. And that's uh, that's uh, an, an in all kinds of of pre-hospital work because we have. We have uh, the northern part of Norway. We have no light in, in most of. We we have done this on on eight patients now, and and one was performed on the highway. And then you have the problem of do you feel safe on the highway? Uh, one patient was in a marshland. Uh, what happens if it rains? What happens if it's so cold that you can't move your fingers? Um, and this this challenges is, is uh, they are they are realistic, and and we need to. 
we need to know about them because it's it's uh, because of them the this procedure is somewhat decision dependent as well because some will freeze slightly some will not freeze uh, some will feel safe on the high wheel some will not and we need to accept that yeah talk about not being able to feel a pulse i can't even feel my finger that's uh, <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Okay, Justin, so uh, cool thing. So you talked about uh, hemodynamics. It improves the hemodynamics. We know we, you, don't, you haven't published your data yet, so you can't really say exactly what's, what your outcomes are, but potential for increasing improvement in outcomes. Certainly the theoretic idea that you would have better perfusion. Uh, the idea that you will also have to think about the downstream effects, meaning that you potentially might have more hyperkalemia in your legs. You might need to deal with that post-procedure. Yep. Uh, and then maybe the idea of afterload. So make sure that you decrease the balloon if you're going to, uh, once you get rocks, so that you can hopefully not impede the heart. Although there might be some considerations for places where you would actually want to leave the balloon up and continue to increase the perfusion of the coronaries uh, yeah. in certain situations. Really cool stuff. Any final thoughts or any final? Yeah, uh, uh, I think that kind of um, I need to I need to address the the safety part because that is actually the most important part of this study, I, in my opinion. To be to be honest, it's it's no great surprise that practicing anesthesiologist is able to perform an arterial cannulation. What is so the feasibility part is that is not so surprising. The the important part here is the safety part. So we call it a feasibility and a safety study. Because is it possible to do this without interfering with the CPR? Because we know that CPR works. If you're having the disease called cardiac arrest and you're receiving the treatment called CPR, this is actually a good treatment because your number needed to treat is four or six or eight, depending on your age and your, your, which kind of system you work in. So it would be a terrible idea to try to implement this uh, procedure, even though I think it's cool it will be a terrible idea to implement this procedure with negative influence on the gold standard treatment. So we know to we need to make sure that we can do this in a safe way. And this is this is the most important part of this study, in my opinion. We have a we have a safety monitoring program, and this is this is the this is the important part. So after every case, the physician will have a will have a direct feedback from the physician to to the project group concerning safety issues how was the uh, resuscitation everything the second part is that we have a post intervention study of the ultrasound images and this is done by an experienced interventional radiologist to make sure that we have a arterial cannulation and not a venous one and the third part of this safety monitoring program is that we have an external panel. So this is, they are not connected to the project group at all. This is an external expert panel consisting of an interventional radiologist, an intensivist, and a pre-hospital working physician. And they will get to review everything we have, all available information, all the journals, transcripts from the defibrillator and the monitor and the ultrasound, everything. So they will... They, they are possible. It's possible to, to then conclude on uh, the safety. Will this did this procedure interrupt uh, the CPR? Did it influence the CPR in a negative way? Because that would be a terrible, terrible thing. So it, this is 
perhaps the m- most important part of, of, of this uh, this uh, program. I, I think. Also, this is such a good it's such a good thing I think that's commenting on uh, for all devices for all interventions all these new t- things that we are trying to think of we've got to make sure uh, that we are hitting the patient in an advantageous way that we are not meeting it at the a- curve at where they're where we're we're lacking in the typical the standard therapy that we are actually improving their outcomes through this so it, your safety monitoring program that's that's uh, wonderful. I think I think if you have a if you have a feasibility study without when you're trying to implement something and you don't have a, 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 some thoughts about the safety you're doing a you're you're lacking something you're doing a bad job but uh, I think this this safety program and this this pilot study the the important part here is that it will act as a a gate opener a door opener for for others because I think uh, at least our ethical regional ethical committee was kind of reluctant to give us the the green light uh, because we are the first one to do it we have no data to support this we have only animal data Uh, but if we have this robust structured uh, safety monitoring program in in the pilot study this might help other systems to achieve uh, ethical uh, ethical green light and i think that uh, i think a lot of ethical committees uh, think like this so awesome All right, Justin. Well, this was great, and we will be looking forward to seeing what your data shows and uh, and what the other institutions are doing as well. So from ED ECMO, I thank you, Justin, for coming. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, so let's summarize this. Uh, a couple of things. If you haven't had a chance, take a look at the in the show notes. There's an article from American Journal of Emergency Medicine, James Daly, a couple of years ago. Uh, it summarizes a lot of the information that was covered in this podcast. Well, as far as just covering some of the research data, yes, uh, the swine models, the animal models for use of balloon occlusion in cardiac arrest are pretty pretty impressive. They've got improved rates of coronary perfusion pressure. They've got improved rates of ROS. They've shown increased uh, rates of cerebral perfusion pressure and even neurologically intact pigs as a result of this. So data from the animal studies is uh, impressive. From the human side, there's really only one paper. It's a case report of two patients in 1996 where patients already had balloon pumps in when they had their cardiac arrest. They just inflated those balloons and found that they had improved coronary perfusion pressure. Again, no other data associated with that, and this is in its infancy. But overall, hey, we'll see what's going to come out of Justin and the other cities that are doing this right now for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. A couple last announcements. Uh, Reanimate 7 is September next year. Uh, I will be at the Mayo ECMO Symposium um, next month in March, so come on and join us there. And then also in April in Rome, I will be there for Pulsatio with Carmine Dallavia and Vilia Antonini. It should be a fantastic ECMO course. Come out and join us there. All right. From Zach Shiner, Joe Belezzo, and Scott Weingard, this is February ED ECMO. Thank you. Bye.